What is organizational culture and why is it important when thinking about schools? How has the upheaval presented by the pandemic era impacted school culture and how might we think about that? Authors and researchers Shauna Horman and Pat Vivian join this episode of the Principal Insights Podcast to provide their perspectives on culture in organizations, how various types of trauma might impact an organization, and how an organization can move forward and grow. On this episode of the Principal Insights Podcast, we welcome special guests Pat Vivian and Dr. Shauna Horman, authors of the book Organizational Trauma and Healing. Vivian and Horman provide expert knowledge in organizational culture and the development of that culture, in the ways an organization can become traumatized, in creating awareness of an organization's health, and in strategies to assist an organization's progress in the presence of a potentially traumatizing situation or set of circumstances. While much of the author's work has been with nonprofit organizations, their insights and ideas about organizational trauma and healing are directly applicable to the K-12 school context, particularly given the upheaval and questions that schools have faced over the past 23 months and continue to face moving forward. Our conversation during this episode ranges across a number of topics, including the meaning of organizational culture and the importance of awareness of an organization's cultural characteristics and overall health, the function of organizational history in moving an organization forward, the meaning of organizational trauma, the factors that cause an organization to be more susceptible to trauma, and suggestions for creating forward progress in an organization. I hope that you will enjoy their thinking and explanation as much as I did, and that you will see the ready connections to creating conditions for progress in schools as organizations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Okay, so we'll begin with a little bit of background and areas of interest, first from Pat and then from Shauna. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so glad to be here, Janet, and um, doing this. Um, let's see, areas of interest. So I have been an external consultant to nonprofit organizations for the past 40 years, it's actually officially 40 years this month. Um, and uh, my work has been um, actually for the first 20 years, pretty broad in terms of what I did with not-for-profit organizations. It could have been anything from team building to strategic planning to um, conflict management, leadership coaching, a, a whole variety of things. but. Starting in the second half of the 1990s, Sean and I began having conversations about how the culture of an organization is influenced by the work of an organization and what that meant for organizations that worked with people or groups or some other entities that were traumatized. So for the past, really, since the later part of the 1990s until now, my work as an external consultant has been almost exclusively focused on helping organizations recognize when trauma has occurred or um, especially when trauma has occurred and they may, might not have recognized it was occurring and other things were happening that were really um, 
detrimental to the organization and helping them recover and heal from it. So, I mean, that's included in addition to the work with organizations, that's included Shauna's and my writing a book, that's included um, Shauna and I and a number of colleagues also writing um, articles and, you know, sharing what we've learned with leaders and, uh, you know, other people in the world of nonprofits. So, and to stay sane, I have three granddaughters, 11, eight, and six. And um, I love to spend time with them and my partner and I love to go birding, especially internationally. Thank you. That's great. Mm -hmm. Shauna, go ahead. I'm reflecting that Pat and I met in 1976 when we were both volunteering for Seattle Rape Relief, which was a rape crisis center started in the early 70s in Seattle. I was both an advocate there as well as a training coordinator and that work with Rape Relief took me to Alaska. So between Alaska for 10 years where I was helping villages to create culturally responsive and appropriate responses to family violence. I was working in the shelter there and I started a counseling practice to then moving back into the Seattle area and working at an institution for kids who had committed violent crimes and doing research there and finding that every child in the institution had been sexually assaulted. And for the girls, both at home, as well as once they ran to the streets. And then starting to work with Pat and looking at organizational cultures and, and some of the differences in cultures from nonprofits to state institutions to both of us then were working at Antioch University. So then university settings, I also taught for the University of Alaska and for the University of Washington. So starting to see just the um, ways that cultures could be so different and how they held the values and practices so strongly. And then finally, starting to work with the tribal college that then took me further into Indian country and looking at what happens when you have historical trauma as well as historical strengths and resilience. All of those have become part of my knowing and as Pat said, our writing. My, uh, Sanity, I think, is in large part due to the fact that I have an amazing family and a great sense of humor. I love color. I love being outside. I love my son and my granddaughter. You know, all of those things, those connections are so important when we're working with trauma. That's what I was 
Thank you. So I heard you both mention organizational culture, and that's not always something when we're mired in the day-to-day -day of schools that we think of immediately. So will you talk a little bit about what is meant by organizational culture and how does organizational culture function? So either one of you can start. Pat, you're on mute. Hello, I am on mute. Um, so I'll, I'll start and then um, Shauna can jump in. So one of the things related to what you just said, Janet, is that we don't really pay attention to culture. We don't even really think that it's operating because it's kind of like the water we swim in, right? I mean, it's, and because especially um, those of us who are in fields that have something to do with helping people, nurturing people, um, you know, which covers a whole range of um, professions in the world, we're keyed to pay attention what's happening to with an individual. And we're also keyed um, to pay attention to what's happening between individuals. But we're not keyed to asking questions and paying attention to what's happening in the life of the organization as an organization. So um, it makes it even more important to focus on culture because we miss so much by only paying attention to not only the day-to-day -day that you were talking about, but also the fact that we're keyed into, are these relationships working? Is this person okay? Forgetting that we're, and rather than asking the questions of, is this organization <clears throat> okay? So, um, so for us, it's really important to have as a compliment the focus we have on individuals to have a focus on, on culture. So I'll hand it over to you now, Shauna, and you can talk about what you know the components of organizational culture are. So one of the things I think about, Pat, is I, I think about teams. It's the people in an organization that make up the culture. And teams and patterns live beyond any individual. When Pat talked about that culture is like the water we swim in, the air we breathe, we come to assumptions about culture that nothing we do impacts it, that um, <laughs> people don't usually sit you down when you come into an organization and say, this is the organizational culture. These are our values. These are how we talk about our values. These are how we uh, do change and conflict resolution. No, what tends to happen is the way you find out about the culture is you try to change something. And suddenly you find out, no, that is not allowed. That is not part of our beliefs. Culture that has strengths are often shown on websites, right? We used to have pamphlets more than we do now about organizations, what we would talk about, what we would lift up. We all know culture is so much more than that. There may be secrets in the culture. There may be undiscussables in the culture. 
I'm thinking about, again, the places that I've worked and how one of the one of the issues at the juvenile facility was that you had to pay attention both to security and to rehabilitation and recovery with the children. Well, what I noticed was there were some people who paid attention to one, some people who paid attention to the other, and there weren't a lot of people who could hold it all. Well, I find that with leaders sometimes too, that um, leaders will sometimes have really strong backbones, have a lot of structure, have a lot of organization, or I'll find leaders that have a lot of heart and they have a lot of um, relationships and they are really cognizant of how people are feeling. And so it, it's interesting to step back and say, what do we value? What do we say about ourselves? How do we show who we are? What would you add, Pat? Um, a couple of things. And I think these are these could be pragmatic suggestions for any leader to pay attention to. It's, one of them is what's the core identity of our organization? What is so important and essential to who we are and how we act with each other that if we lost it, we would lose our very identity? And I think that's a great question to ask on a regular basis. And uh, you know, just good practice. It has nothing to do with organizational trauma, except that if you don't have clarity about that, it makes the trauma worse, that's for sure. The other thing is um, somewhere along the way from <clears throat> somebody inside one of my client organizations, I learned a marketing question, which was, if your organization were a person at a party, how would your organization behave? And I have used that to help organizations think about themselves akin to how we talk about individuals with their personalities. Because I think that's another very down to earth way that an organization can learn something about themselves. And the reality is people are always a little uneasy and they laugh and you know, when you ask that question, well, you know, pretend you're, you're at a birthday party <coughs> for, for a friend and you know, how, how would you act how, you know, if it was your school, your school went to a birthday party? How, how, what, would it, what would that person look like? Who would that person be? How would they act? Anyway. Wow, that's a, a very fascinating question. That's, I think that we could spend hours talking about that just from a school Absolutely. perspective and a district perspective, yes. Yeah, and the, and the good thing about any question like that is because what we're always trying to do is help people see each other and see the larger entity in new light a question like that that helps people get going is um, it is always worthwhile. It has lots of side benefits that you don't even recognize. <coughs> so you both uh, started to mention organizational trauma a little bit, and that's not something that we've always talked about in schools. Um, it's it would be a fairly new concept for for many educational leaders. And thinking about the fact that on March 12th, 2020, we were in school. And then on March 13th, 2020, 
everyone went home. Um, and the way that we had to conduct our business radically changed uh, from the relational um, concepts that we use in school and the way that we connect with students and with each other. And then all of a sudden everyone was on a screen. Um, so it changed our way of relating. It changed our instructional model. It changed the way that we think about grading. Um, and to be honest with you, most schools weren't prepared for that. It was a, a radical change in the way that the paradigm of school functioned. So thinking about that in terms of schools and how we're kind of still navigating the waters here and the fact that we don't talk about organizational trauma in education that much, very basically talk about what organizational trauma is um, and what that means, not necessarily in schools, but just generally. Pat's gonna begin? No, Shauna can begin this time. Okay. Organizational trauma is a injury to the body of the organization. It is an event or a series of events that impact the organization quite harshly and negatively. So for example, an external one-time event that schools are too familiar with is a school shooting. It could also be an internal event if it's someone within the school who does the shooting, one of the students, for example. So what happens with an event like that, such a devastating event, it often gets media attention. It gets the attention of the community. People come together often to rally, to figure out how to provide some support for children and teachers and whoever's in the building. And the fact is an event like that has long-term impact. That's one of the things that happens with org trauma is that there's long-term psychic impact that happens. Perhaps what the school then chooses to do is increase security. Perhaps it does more drills with students. Perhaps it um, hires security people. The, the fact is it stays in, in people's body memory and, and in their psyches that it's there and it lives in the organizational culture, right? It gets referred to. What you did, Janet, was you talked about how school shifted before and after everybody had to go home because of the pandemic. Schools also shift before and after a devastating event. So that's one way, that's one source of organizational trauma. A, a second source is ongoing wounding. And again, that can happen from inside or outside. So for example, I worked with a school where some of the students repeatedly spray painted um, swastikas in bathrooms. So that had really hard impact not only for the school members and the teachers, but actually within the community. And it was ongoing. An ongoing source of organizational trauma from the community could be if one of the newspapers or uh, a public figure 
were to constantly make negative comments about the school. School isn't meeting its standards. It isn't in a way that's really harsh and wounding and does it repeatedly. There's also what's called redemptive organizations. And being a redemptive organization can actually be a cause of work trauma because we have the place that we are. And, and if you can imagine raising your hand to about your heart, that's where we are. And then we have the place that we wanna be and you raise your hand up above your head and there's tension between those two places. And sometimes people get to the place of thinking, we're never gonna get there. No matter how much we walk the walk and talk the talk, that strain and stress is so hard. We're never gonna have equity. We'll never have racial justice. It's always gonna be out of our reach. And that can be very demoralizing, right? When people don't in fact stop and pay attention to the steps that they're taking, but instead get overwhelmed by the strain. Finally, there's, there's the whole issue of empathy. And the literature talks about compassionate organizations. Pat and I also talk about um, having empathy. And a lot of your teachers have empathy and compassion for the children in their classrooms. And sometimes that can be overwhelming. Children who come to class day after day, they don't have lunches, they don't have any money for lunches. They may come um, in clothing that's not appropriate to the weather. Um, and, and we want our teachers and our school personnel to respond with empathy to our children. Well, when we have that always out there, we can actually have people who then develop fatigue, compassion fatigue. They might develop secondary traumatic stress, having some um, issues with sleeping and eating and breakthrough thinking and all of those responses that we think of when we think of post-traumatic stress. When we have um, people in the system, school personnel who are having secondary trauma and compassion fatigue, and it stays there, and perhaps there's anxiety contagion, that actually creates in the system trauma, creates traumatization for the system. Kat, would you like to add? There's a couple of things that I would um, say. Um, <clears throat> going back to the thing about organizational culture, because it's the air we breathe, the water we swim in, um, we don't notice it. It's um, as likely as not that people inside the organization might say something along the lines of, things seem to be a little rocky here, or I'm not sure this is the right place for me, or uh, you know, I'm doing my best as a leader and I seem to be failing. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out to be a principal, but you know, just any number of things. But we say those connected to our own personal 
qualities, our own personal circumstances. So in the same way that we don't recognize the dynamics of what's happening at the cultural level in an organization in everyday life, we also don't recognize the danger signs when something has traumatized the organization. So it could be something in the past that never really got talked about. I mean, we've got dramatic, unfortunately, we've got way, way, way too many dramatic and public incidents now around schools. But, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it may have been harder to even recognize schools are in trouble. There's that cumulative effect of children who, um, you know, are, are not getting enough to eat or, you know, a community where, um, you know, there's a level of violence because of what's happening in the community gets spilled into the school, but we don't think about those kinds of things. So the trauma goes unnoticed. If the trauma goes unnoticed, it doesn't mean it heals by itself. It just means that it goes underground, which means then that the trauma gets really mixed up in other developmental hurdles that an organization, a school needs to go through. So it makes it even harder sometimes to discern whether there was some unhealed trauma in the past and that's erupted, or the organization is at a challenging time right now um, in the life of the organization, not the kind of challenging time that came when we turned everything upside down with the pandemic and said, go home you know, and figure it out in the next week and then let your students and their families know. Not like that, that's not normal development, but normal development might be getting a new leader, might be moving into a new school, might be um, redistricting that all of a sudden shakes up all of the um, children in you know what you thought were your school and they're not there anymore. So there's any number of things that are part of the life of being a school in a community. The, the thing about trauma is it's extraordinary and outside what anybody had any reason to expect. So we can say, for example, the pandemic was a global trauma because nobody was prepared for it. It wasn't part of anybody's normal developmental process, even if some think tank somewhere said pandemic could happen, right? And so we were all immersed in it and we're still trying very hard to, you know, to get out to the other side of it. So those are the two things that I would emphasize in addition to what Shauna said. It's easy to miss it. And it's also easy to recognize, uh oh, something bad happened in the past when you try to do what should be a normal developmental process in the life of a school or another kind of organization. And then you realize, uh oh, there's something unfinished in the life of our you know, community. So. So you reminded me of uh, that idea of the importance of organizational history. And you mentioned in your book, um, that idea of organizational amnesia. Yes. So um, if you would talk about those concepts, that, especially now that there's a lot of uh, surveys and a lot of research that people are leaving the field. Um, you know, I've even seen it referred to as the great resignation. 
Um, so talk about the importance of organizational history um, and the dangers of organizational amnesia um, and its impact on the organization as a whole. Yeah, so I would start with the importance of organizational history as the grounding that helps the organization know itself in the same way that individuals are helped by understanding their own history and how their own history has influenced them and you know, helped them get to where they were. Again, at a very pragmatic level, having some sort of collective storytelling in a school with people participating in what they know about the beginning of a school system, the beginning of a school district, the first class that was in their your physical building there. So to ground in to ground in the history is important because it helps you remember all those things Shauna was talking about in terms of the values and the strengths and things we put on the website, but they become more alive when people realize where they came from. It's also an opportunity when you um, think about the organization's history to realize that there are maybe some things in the history that everybody got used to doing which aren't really helpful anymore. And I'm not talking specifically about the pandemic. Hold the pandemic to the side for a minute because I think part of what hap has happened is the pandemic has turned everything so upside down now we're questioning anything that we ever did in our former way of doing things. But it's natural, you know, in a school, for example, that was a junior high school, and all of a sudden it got to be a middle school because it got the sixth graders, right? And then you have sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and people went, this isn't the same as when seventh graders came into our building. They were whatever, fill in the blank. And these sixth graders aren't whatever, fill in the blank. And it's not working so well. But that's a reminder that that was, that was a shift that happened in a lot of school systems across the country. And we learned to cope with those differences. That's how we update our history. The other thing that's important about organizational history is it sets the stage for what you want your future narrative to be, right? So it's, so history, so we think of that word as being in the past, but that word has a, um, has a connection to the present and also is this, the jumping off point for the future. And so lots of times, in, particularly in traumatized organization, it's really important to give people an opportunity, not only talk about the bad things that went on and sort of whatever that did to their organizational culture, but to understand that they can choose their narrative going forward collectively. They can have a conversation and they can say, this is how we were, but this is where we want to go next. So it's in it. So the other thing about this is it's an empowering process is also something leaders can very easily do inside um, their systems. To the extent at any point along the way, we either individually or collectively refuse to recognize what went on and we get really good at encouraging other people right along with us to say, no, no, that didn't happen. We have lots of this in our wider society these days, 
right? We have competing narratives about what happened on January 6th last year, and they don't even touch each other, let alone have some sort of integrating narrative. So we know the power of encouraging people to forget. Even in our best interests or, or in our, when in, from our best selves, we're trying to be helpful. We say things to people like, they're there, don't cry. It will be all better. We all will get through this. You will get through it. As if we could really tell another person not to mourn or not to feel sad, right? So we have, even in, with the best of intentions, we have a tendency towards being, towards amnesia because amnesia means we don't have so much flooding our interpersonal um, arena, right? And so history is important and the amnesia interrupts all of what, how the history could function and could be a springboard for change gets lost when amnesia takes over because then you just get unwelcome surprises when something breaks through the surface and leaves people sort of lost about what to do next. So that's what I would say about history and, and amnesia. Shauna? Well, you know, one of the things I found myself thinking is <laughs> one of the research pieces that Pat and I did was to do a, the story of Seattle rape relief. And one of the things we asked people was about the creation story. How did it start? And it was fascinating to us that so many people knew the creation story, only they didn't all know the same one. And in fact, very few people knew the right one. And so it, it was such a telling piece that we, make things up along the way and we can make them up either because that's what we're comfortable with or because that's just what we got told and it doesn't mean it's accurate so one of the things about the collective that pat mentioned i i've done exercises with groups where i've had them start with the folks who were there the longest and come into the center of the circle and tell a story from when they started and you just keep bringing people in every five years or whatever and it's so um helpful to have it built like that and to be able to have the data triangled a bit because there are other people sort of hearing what people are saying. And then it's helpful as well to have some documents that actually go back to that time because you may still have an entire group that does not know its own history. I wanna share a story about a student who said to a native elder. Now the student, uh, her background was that her parents um, were Irish. Her grandparents had Im immigrated. And she said to the native elder, I'm so um, interested in native culture. I, I would love for you to tell me stories from when, when your culture started and to tell me about values. And the elder said to her, who are your people? 
and she didn't understand that. And he said, he said, I'm guessing you're of European origin. I'm wondering where your people come from. And she said, Ireland. And he said, oh, what an amazing country. So many stories there. Please go to Ireland and ask the elders about the stories, which just reinforces what Pat said about how important it is to know our origins so that we know our own grounding. Yes, when we started school this year in August, we had been in and out, in and out over the last two years. And so we began with um, our own origin stories of how we ended up in education um, and use that as the frame to start the year. Um, kind of like, okay, let's put our feet back on the ground and, and move forward from there. So yeah, I appreciate your comments about narratives. And as a former English teacher, of course, it, it goes right near and dear to my heart to talk about the value and importance of narratives. Um, going, using the narrative as a springboard and the stories that we hear, um, sometimes we don't think about the idea of organizational health that kind of the narratives are diagnostic in a way, or they, they present us some symptoms um, not to pathologize the organization, but it allows us to take a look closely at it. So talk about the idea of being aware of organizational health, how someone might do that, um, what it means um, to think about the health of an organization as a whole. Um, because as Pat said earlier, very often in our human connection, um, we, we focus on looking at individuals and individual interactions, but it's the health of the organization that, that is where the progress has to come from. <clears throat> so a couple of things come to my mind. One, <clears throat> long before I was really paying attention to trauma, I was teaching a class that was called organizational wellness. And the idea of organizational wellness was really rooted in the idea of individual wellness for me. And there was very little written. There might've been a little bit about healthy companies, but not very much. So this, I don't know, late eighties, early nineties, somewhere in there, anyway. The students and I sort of cooked up some ideas about organizational wellness, right? Because there wasn't anything written. It was this is this is ancient history compared to what it's like today in terms of how we think about these things. <clears throat> Not that we've got a lock on it now, but anyway. Um, so one of the things that we did was we took the dimensions of an individual's life that we might pay attention to. And we said the intellectual dimension, the spiritual dimension, the emotional dimension, the physical <clears throat> dimension. So you can actually take those and translate them into an organization. You, for physical, you, you, and you're talking about the organization, you're not talking about individuals. What's the setting like? What's the physical setting like? It, you know, down to <clears throat> is there natural light in the bill, right? I mean, you can you can do it as as um, simple or as complex as you want. 
what's the emotional life of an organization? Those are both questions around what's the quality of relationship among the people inside the organization. It could be, you know, something like um, the country of Bhutan, which has a happiness factor. <clears throat> you could look at what's the happiness factor among our children. But you're 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 um, you're individualizing it, but you're rooted in the emotional dimension of the organization as a whole. The spiritual dimension. <clears throat> so we. <laughs> this is what we probably have to be even more careful these days about this word, but we're talking about, I mean, for an individual, we're talking about how they connect to something that's larger than themselves. So that's all of what in an organization would speak to its health. How does it see itself in the world of education? How does it see itself in the community it serves? How does it see its values? How does it name its values and play out its values and notice what's happening with its values, right? And again, you can ask questions and you're, you're asking, you're answering these questions collectively, but you've got, you've got great sources because you've got kids who are like, what's the, I don't know what the right, they're like naive participants, right? They don't have all the defenses that the grown-up participants might have. So. And then cognitive, same thing. It's like, what's the intellectual life of, of the school like? like? Where's clarity in structure, in, in purpose, in, um, in evaluation, in, you know, in accountability, and all of those things that usually we lead with our mind to get those <clears throat> figured out. So, you don't have to you don't have to make it really complicated you could you could take all of what i said and you could ask two questions in each of those dimensions and you could ask them of important stakeholder groups inside and you want to go outside you go out to the community and you get <clears throat> if if you do it in a way that people feel like it's safe to be honest you get a good picture you don't need something highly sophisticated. You just need something usable. <clears throat> so that let me stop there. That's the thing that comes up for me to that direct kind of translation. I remember saying before Shauna goes, I remember saying to you when we first talked uh, some weeks ago that while I'm glad that there's a at least a conversation about self-care for educators now. Um, because, you know, historically we've been, you know, nose to the grindstone and, and check it at the door, uh, however you might be feeling. Um, I do appreciate that there's a conversation about, you know, how do we take care of ourselves, um, in our care of our students? Um, yeah. you know, but I've also said, you know, the donuts aren't enough, right? That's what are the structures and the systems that need to be put in place in, within the organization to assist people in thriving there. So, yeah. Um, Shauna, I don't know what else you want to say about organizational health, but I, I just, I know that both of those things have to work in tandem. The, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You can't really have one without the other. So the, the other word that I would throw into the mix is compassion. We have to take care of ourselves. The structure has to allow for that 
and we need to one another. It's not just the students. The adults, one of the questions that I often ask is, what have you done for a coworker in the last week? It could be a really simple thing, you know, a little note to say, I'm just thinking about you. Um, yes, somebody dropped off for me a teddy bear with a rose last night. How lovely is that for Valentine's Day? It's like, you know, it's just simple, simple things. Um, and yes, it's not, it's not the donuts. It's knowing I'm thought about. It's, it's acknowledging. It's doing the connections so we don't feel isolated. Teachers can feel really isolated in a classroom with their students. So how do we keep helping them to build connections, which helps increase their resilience and so the overall resilience? So I'll provide a practical strategy for um, anyone who's listening. At the start of the year, um, it, this was for volunteers only, but we ended up with 50 people signing up. Um, and then I paired people together. And each month you send uh, each other a little note or a little card. Um, yeah. And then once or twice a year, you get them a gift that's not more than five or $10. So, um, and it's, we called it colleague connection. Um, yeah. And people just, people really enjoyed that. And it was another way for us to connect after the disruptions of the 18 months prior. Right, <clears throat> right. The other, <clears throat> the other thing that I would um, add to this conversation, and I'm ignorant of what's been done specifically in the world of education, and particularly um, <clears throat> elementary and you know, middle school, high school education. But in in the world of business, in the world of nonprofits, there are there's a lot of life cycle work. What is the, and of course we know with kids, we've got lots of, you know, what, what does development look like for a child over a period of years? I would be really interested to find out if there is something akin to that in education, because it, what it does <clears throat> is gives you um, uh, not a static look at what's going on, but a reminder that you had a beginning, you are wherever you are in, in the growth. As you, you go through the beginning with all of its you know, disruption and lack of stability, growth, which has challenges associated with it, maturity as an organization, and then the danger of not recognizing that you're stagnating means you could, you know, it could get worse or you rejuvenate and you just continue thriving. If you put that kind of structure in place, it also gives an organization an opportunity to say, where are we in the challenges that are associated, you know, with, with um, the stage that we're at? Because it's another way of putting structure in place to assess whether the organization is doing what it needs to do to successfully get through each phase. And my, one of my mantras with clients is, if you don't put structure in place in your organization, then you're leaving everything to interpersonal relationships. And I guarantee you that will not end well because our, our interpersonal relationships, they cannot hold all of those 
all of that lack of stability and lack of security that comes from structure, if you don't have it, the interpersonal relationships really, they get flooded with way too much. So I like to think about simple things that can be part of conversations so people are reminded this is normal. And it's also, it's like, oh, we just added sixth grade or <clears throat> we just, we realized we were over-enrolled and now we have 20 kids per elementary school class instead of 15 or 25 instead of 20. It's like, well, how did that happen? And what does that mean in terms of how we need to look at things right now to make sure we can move forward? Rather than seeing that as, oh my goodness, look at what just happened to us and we don't know and we're sort of left, um, left feeling like everything is out of control when there are some explanations that help people say, oh, we need to pay attention. So how was this done in other places? And how do we move forward by paying attention to where we are? in you know our developmental process so that makes me think about how we how we bring new teachers into the field so we have a process for them to demonstrate their instructional prowess um, but we never ask them about their internal development right we are interested in how they teach in you know their first i don't know 36 months on the job which is nice, right? But how about the person's growth? How about how they're feeling about the position? How about that's that? I think that's a piece that's missing into the induction into the field on top of it. So it's not just the organizational development, organization's development, but the development of the people who work there. That's yeah. that's definitely a missing piece for us. As yes. a side, go ahead, Sean. I'm just going to add something. It's not just about meeting your need and your standards, right? It's also about, is it meeting their goals and their values? Yes. <clears throat> I was gonna say, <clears throat> you're just saying what you did, Janet, made me realize my sister, who was a teacher for decades, a teacher, a teacher, a principal, all of those things. Um, she wrote a book called Teaching is a Privilege. And it's, it is about the, the personal, sort of the personal development of a teacher. And, and, and it's just a reminder to me that there are books out there. there. There are things that we could do to help people have a common language. So you don't just have three teachers wondering on their own, but you have a group of maybe 10 new teachers who read something in common who then can use that as a way to reflect, right? It, again, it takes, it gives people a starting place. That's easier than just, this is how I'm feeling right now, right? It gives them an, an entry point that's like, here's, there's a set of questions in this book. And as I answered these questions, here's what came to me anyway. So. So I'm ready to tie a bow on our conversation. Um, which has been absolutely energizing for me. Um, so I'll give you some choices. You can share a practical tip or a suggestion for uh, those of us who are leading schools uh, during the pandemic um, or an idea that you would just like to leave people with. 
a tip, a suggestion, or an idea. And whoever wants to start can start. I guess the first thing that comes to me is this idea that, um, to state the obvious, nothing is all good or all bad. And that while the pandemic has been heartbreakingly sad for people, it has also had explosions of sort of courage and new thinking. Um, and that that's true of a school system, that's true of a school, and that's true of individuals. You know, each teacher or, you know, secretarial staff or custodial staff or, and it's also true of the kids. And so it's a reminder to me that we need venues and opportunities to talk about those things and let the sadness or the grief, you know, the losses be there, <clears throat> let the worries be there, but also let those surprising moments when <clears throat> nobody thought we could do fill in the blank, but we did it, right? So that, so, I mean, I guess some of that is very practical because I like, you know, those kind of opportunities for conversation. But I think it's just holding the complexity, which you're good at doing anyway, right? But sometimes we're good at doing it with the out there thing we need to do with the students, not so much with the in there thing we need to do with ourselves and with each other. The word that keeps coming to me is appreciation. I am very appreciative of how teachers have climbed such high mountains to be able to do what they've done. I hope they are appreciating themselves. Um, I, I think that one of the strategies that I use is I think about high points. I think about a high point in my work from the last week, two weeks, month, because it helps me remember what I'm doing and why I'm here. And especially on those days that get really hard or days in a row where I've just been really tired, to be able to remember, go back to those origins. I loved what you said about everybody coming together and you know how we got into education well let's come together and appreciate the present and what what is happening that is invigorating us and feeding our souls thanks janet i want to thank the both of you for your ideas and the lens through which you've given me um a way to think about the field that I haven't before. So I'm very grateful for that. So thank you to the both of you. You are most welcome. It was fun.
I firmly believe this statement, culture eats strategy for breakfast. A healthy organizational culture creates the conditions for growth, innovation, and thriving. As we progress through the upheaval of the pandemic era, we are presented with opportunities to consider our school culture closely to determine its strengths and areas of need. Thank you to Shauna Horman and Pat Vivian for presenting their ideas about organizational culture, organizational trauma, and healing. The links to learn more about their book, Organizational Trauma and Healing, as well as about their website that contains articles and other resources are found in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Principal Insights Podcast.